0: Hello, and welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. I'm Mike Bird.
1: I'm Lisa Plain.
0: Today, we are joined by a very special guest. His name is Austin Belsack, and he's joining us to talk about the hidden job market and value validation projects. Austin is also joining us for what is officially our one-year anniversary episode, today, episode Woo. 56. So if you throw it back to October 30th, 2019, dial it back as close to that, and that's when we started this show. So it's awesome to have Austin. Austin is the founder of cultivatedculture.com where he helps people land jobs they love without traditional experience and without applying online. Austin's job search system stems from his personal experience transitioning from a new grad with a biology degree, a 2.58 GPA, and a job in healthcare to landing interviews and offers at Microsoft, Google, and Twitter. His strategies have been featured in Forbes, Business Insider, Fast Co, and Inc. And he's helped thousands of job seekers land jobs at places like Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Salesforce, LinkedIn, Tesla, SpaceX, Goldman Sachs, Deloitte, the list goes on ESPN, the NFL, and more without applying online. It's pretty impressive. Austin joins us from New York City. Austin,
2: welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. Mike, Lisa, thank you for having me. uh, And congrats on the anniversary. I'm I'm honored to be here. It's our pleasure. Yeah, for sure. We
0: share something very interesting in common uh, that I'd lost sight of until I saw your bio, and I believe we share the same GPA from university. So nice, yeah. I, we I'm we were kidding. killing it. <laughs> we, <laughs> stumbling with every step. That's right.
2: I remember those days. Yeah, and I'm I'm happy they're they're in the past now, and and we can laugh about them and talk about them on a podcast. Exactly, they didn't feel so fun at the
0: time. Cool. Yeah, so as, as your bio states, you have a pretty amazing story um, thus far in your career. Can you share anything else that you think our listeners should know?
2: Um, outside of the story, I mean, I would say that the biggest takeaway that I always you know, try to, you know, or at least hope that people get out of it is that I started in a place that Pretty much everybody starts from. Um, and that is not to say, you know, obviously there, there are things um, that I am equipped with in terms of, um, um, you know, being a white male and having my parents, um, you know, help me pay my way through college and, and things of that nature, which obviously give me a, a leg up over many folks out there. Um, but when we think about, um, you know, in terms of grades and, you know, things that I brought to the table, I was pretty much at the, the bottom of the stack in my class. You know, when we looked at everybody who went to my university or similar universities, uh, I probably wouldn't be the one picked out of the crowd for the great internship or whatever it was. Um, I had a, a lot working against me when I graduated, and that was really all my own fault. I'm, I'm happy to, to admit to that. <laughs> Um, you know, I didn't, I, I took the only internship that was handed to me uh, by my, my roommate's dad, essentially, because I hadn't applied to any, I didn't apply to any interviews, or I didn't apply to any companies, I didn't interview anywhere else besides that one company, they just put an offer in my lap. And so I mentioned all this to say that I put myself in a pretty bad position, uh, but was able to work through that. And, you know, looking back on it now, I can say that I'm, I'm grateful for, for what happened, because I don't think I'd be where I am today if I hadn't had faced that adversity. Um, and so I think for a lot of students out there, they feel like they don't have value to bring to the table, or they don't know what they can do to differentiate themselves, or they feel like um, other people have better grades or, you know, better this or better that, and they wonder how they can compete. And my hope is that the strategies that we're going to talk about and, and the, fits, the stuff that I went through and learned uh, creates some space or some inspiration for people to know that there are other ways to showcase your value and get in the door. That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like you come from a pretty powerful sort of place
0: of why as far as going through that kind of a story, that kind of experience for yourself, and then being able to empathize with people who probably have had some similar experiences that, they can relate to. That's cool. Yeah, appreciate it. When someone's talking about the hidden job market, someone who's never heard of it stumbles across it online, what's the hidden job market? What's this concept of hidden jobs? What are they typically encountering? What are they referring to?
2: Sure. So I was talking to a buddy of mine um, recently, and his company was hiring for a role. And so the way it went down was, um, his VP uh, announced it internally at an at, at, in, in all hands for their team. So the VP got on. She said, "You know, hey, we we've, we've had this need for a while. We finally got the budget and the headcount, and so we're officially opening up this role. If you're interested, or you know anybody who's interested, you know, send me an email. Send them my way. We're going to get the process started, and then we'll have the online posting up, you know, shortly, and and people can come in that way. So that announcement was made uh, on a certain day." And the job posting was not put out for another couple of weeks, more like four to six weeks. And that's because this was a larger company. So there's red tape, there's bureaucracy, there's approvals, there's confirmation of budgets, there's writing the job description. There are all these things that go into getting that job posting up and online. So what's happening during those six weeks? Well, all of the people who currently work for that company, uh, they're interviewing for the role if they're interested in it. And if they know somebody, um, you know, this company, as most companies do, they pay a referral bonus. And so they're looking at friends that they want to work with. um, But also, you know, they're looking at potentially some extra cash in their pocket and they're referring people into this role. So what happens? Well, a lot of these people go through most of the interview process uh, and then the job gets posted online. And at that point, the VP has a really good sense of who she likes out of that original group of candidates. And that original group of candidates has been vetted in one way or another, either by being a current employee of the company uh, or by being vouched for by a current employee at the company. So everybody who then sees that job when it's posted online, uh, they're fighting basically or competing against these people who have already gone through the process and already have that sort of plus one from either the vouch or being an internal employee. And so that company went through the due diligence, right? They brought in uh, online applicants and they, they, ha- they interviewed them and they did the whole thing. Eventually somebody who was referred in won out. And the reason that that happened was sort of twofold. One, that person got in early and they got in when the job was fresh and they had that plus one and they just had more access to information through uh, the person that they knew at the company. And that's really powerful. On top of that, companies just prefer referrals. There's a lot of data out there that shows referrals are better employees. They are more productive. They you know, have higher outputs. They're more loyal. They stay longer, like all of these things that companies care about. And so you're just at a really big disadvantage when you apply online. But what we just talked about that story, that's essentially the hidden job market in a nutshell. So Um, put another way or to sort of define it, the hidden job market is that space where a role is opened internally um, and only people who work at that company know about it. And it's not yet posted online for everybody else to see. And that's really where the vast majority of hires are made. A lot of times roles are posted as was true in this case, as basically a formality, like, hey, we have to do this for, um Legal purposes, and just to do our due diligence and for DNI purposes, but really, we know the person that we want to bring in. And so that that's the hidden job market in a nutshell. And when you look at the data, that's where most hires are made. So finding a way to access that is really where the magic starts to happen for a lot of job seekers.
0: Wow, yeah, that makes so much sense. Thank you. Great explanation. Now,
1: i'm I'm imagining people listening to this and thinking, damn you, hidden job market. (laughs) (laughs) So for the people who are thinking that way, what's a possible mindset shift for them about how this could actually benefit them?
2: Sure. So the, the biggest thing that helped me was just looking at the numbers and looking at where I was spending my time. So Um, you know, and I put these numbers out there and these are numbers that I've come across. Um, and and they're sort of a mix of what seems to be commonly accepted in the industry, um, from surveys and anecdotal evidence that we've seen. And also my personal experience, you know, with the people that that I work with. And so uh, I will caveat with that because sometimes people come to me and they're like, this isn't a verified source. This isn't peer reviewed or whatever it is. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, we work with what we have, but essentially, um, 75% of people are using online applications as their primary method to get in the door for a job. Uh, But when you apply online, you only have, on average, about a 2% chance of getting in the door. But that percentage actually drops as you go up in company caliber, and there are more people vying for that single job. And so that's really tough, right? 75% of your competition is all in this funnel where you only have about a 2% chance of success. Whereas if we look on the flip side, referrals make up in the ballpark of 5 to 10% of applicants, uh, but they make up about 40 to 80% of hires. And so even if we take the most conservative estimate there of 40%, um, that's still w- well ahead of 2%, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And so when I understood that as a job seeker, I said, okay, the key here is to get a referral. And when I understood that and I saw the data, uh, one, that made the leap easier to take because The big question that comes up next is, well, how do I get a referral if I don't know anybody at the company? And that's really kind of the core focus of my my job search strategy. But if we understand that, you know, we may not know how to do this thing, but it's well worth our time to explore it simply because we see the data. Like if I go to Vegas and I have $100 in my pocket... I could play roulette, which has you know the worst odds of any game in the casino. But if there was another game out there that had a, a 40 to 80% chance of, of me winning, but I've never played it before, I'm probably gonna play that over roulette even if I know the rules of roulette simply because I have a better chance of winning. And so you can figure this stuff out. There are strategies, you know. I think we'll talk a little bit more about them, mm-hmm. but once you understand what the data looks like, um, it makes it a lot easier to invest in that side of things. And it is possible to build relationships with people and get a referral uh, despite not knowing anybody right now. Like that is a skill you can build. That is something that you can achieve. It's not like you only have your immediate friends and family and network to tap into.
0: That's huge. So true. And that's definitely, I know I've been there myself where you're just sort of gone, you've gone down the dark trail of online job hunting and you completely forget about the people who are around you and the fact that you can grow that list of people that are in your world, in your life that can help you and advocate for you while you're looking for something. So it really sounds like employers when they're opening up a position internally, there's this gap, the space that you've described between the opening internally and the outside world finding out about an opening. What's the, what's the real goal here for the employer, aside from the fact that it might be just a, an innate preference, why else does it exist? why does this gap exist?
2: The gap exists mainly because of, I would say, bureaucracy and and red tape. I don't think that companies are purposefully creating a gap so that they, you know, funnel in the people internally first. Like that's going to happen either either way. And there are companies out there that get, you know, you you go look at a small uh, lean startup, that job posting may be up same day, next day, like that gap doesn't exist as much, but does that change the fact that a referral is still the preferred hire? Probably not because, mm. and there are, there are so many reasons for this, but, um, you know, you just to explain a few of them, we, we, we just talked about a couple in terms of the data that I mentioned around, you know, referrals being more productive and staying longer and all this other stuff. Uh, but on top of that, you know, there is, uh, one, there's the cost to hire somebody. And so, When we think of all the costs end-to-end, you know, either I'm paying recruiters to go find candidates, sift through resumes, or I'm paying an agency. Um, And if I'm paying an agency, I may be paying an even higher premium simply because I have to pay them a, a percentage of the salary. And so, you know, that's a cost. And then I'm taking people out of their day to interview this person. And so what's an hour of my employee's time worth not just the salary, but the the productivity uh, that they could generate in that hour. And that's really expensive too. And so when we add all these things up, there's two things to think about. One, making a bad hire is really expensive for a company. So if I go hire the wrong person, I have to essentially double my expenses for sourcing that person. But I also have to calculate the lost productivity from uh, stretching the job search out uh, another, you know, however many months it is. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at, you know, everybody on a team, how much revenue they generate per year, and you break that down by 365 days in the year, And then you calculate that extra, well, let's say it takes a company three months to fill a role. total hypothetical. Now you have six months um, per head. That's a lot of money. I think we recently did the calculation at Microsoft and this number could be totally off, but I think it was something like if you divide out the money that Microsoft makes per all of its employees, it's something like a couple million dollars a head. And so if you think about that on a yearly basis, um, that is, you know, let's say it's, I think it was 5 million was the number that popped in my head. That's two and a half million dollars that the company loses by not having somebody in that role. And that's an extreme example. Um, you know, not every company is going to be mm-hmm. a, a, at that level, but it's very expensive for this company to make a bad hire. So their goal is, you know, they want to hire the best person. They also want to mitigate risk and having somebody who is either an internal employee already, or has the, the vouch coming from an internal employee helps them mitigate risk. Uh, and so that really is why another reason or a big reason why they focus on those referrals on top of all the data that they have that, that referrals are, you know, just that tend to be better employees in general. And so when we look at all of these reasons, uh, it really stacks the, get, the deck against people who are applying online. And there's a reason companies are willing to pay a referral bonus. There's a reason companies are willing to give people several thousand dollars. In some cases, I, I've seen people at Microsoft, you know, make some significant referral bonuses, simply because they had a big need for that role. And they trusted, you know, people within the Microsoft community to bring in a better person than what they were finding online. And that tends to be the case at a lot of companies. Very
0: interesting. Those are all things that I don't think most job seekers think about when they actually swivel themselves around to the other side of the table and see the hiring problem from the perspective of an employer, that's something that totally gets missed. I appreciate you filling a lot of people in
2: on that. Yeah, cool. great question.
1: What would you say most people are surprised about when they learn more about the hidden job market?
2: I think that... I, I, I actually don't think people are as surprised that it exists because I, th- I think we inherently know that it exists, right? Like the first thing that every single person does when they're looking for a new job is go look at where their friends, family, and meaningful connections work because we inherently know that if we can get a referral and somebody to pass our resume along, like we just have a better chance of getting in the door. And whether that's a conscious or subconscious choice uh, or awareness that people have, it's something that I see with, it's like pretty much 100% across the board. I don't know many people who are like, yeah, I don't really care what my friends are doing. I'm just going to start Mm -hmm. applying online. Um, In most cases, there's at least some sort of cursory research done there. And so I don't think people are necessarily surprised that it exists. But I think what surprises them more is that when we lay out some of these ideas and strategies, I think that they are surprised that there is a way in beyond having somebody who is Uh, you know, a friend or an immediate family member just ready to go, because a lot of us don't have that person just waiting in the wings at our dream company to to kind of send us through the door. And I think that the, the reason people are surprised is because this process has been created in such a way that is honestly, I think pretty detrimental to actually making the best hire out there. Um, this process, the job search process of, and, and when I say this process, I'm sort of talking about uh, as a job seeker, you tweak your resume and your cover letter and you apply online. And as a company, you have your applicant tracking system or whatever software you're using and the applicant applications come in and you sift through them. Uh, there's so much that gets lost in translation there on, on both sides. And mm-hmm. it's just a really poor way to to surface up candidates. And so I think what happens though, is that, you know, everybody's like, well, why doesn't it change? And it's because it works for the companies that, that are at the very top, like fortune 500s. All, I think the stat is like 98% of fortune 500s use an applicant tracking system. And why do they do that? Well, because, you know, most people want to work at fortune 500s, so the best talent typically wants to either work there or start their own thing slash be an executive at, something like a startup that they believe in. Um, But, you know, that's a very small percentage of, of people. Um, Most people who are in the nine to five, they want to work for a great company with great benefits that makes a lot of money that can pay them a lot of money. And so, you know, we sort of are funneled into this system that doesn't really do right by the candidate, uh, but also can be tough on recruiters. I think, you know, recruiters get such a bad rap from job seekers and they're the ones, you know, that, that job seekers point the finger at. And so another thing, you know, going back to stuff that I hope job seekers take out of my message, like the system is the system and it it is what it is. And you can, you basically have two choices. Like you can sit there and complain about the system, which is one, not going to fix the system. uh, But two, not really doing you any good. It's sort of a waste of your energy. Or you can say, okay, I accept the system for what it is. It sucks. I don't like it, but I can't change it. And it's, taking my energy, draining my energy to try and play into this thing, let me find a different way in the door. And when we give ourselves that permission, and we step back, it's, it's not easy by any means, you know, 75% of people out there are applying for jobs online, that's like all of our friends that we know, or anybody else we talk to, they're all probably applying online, it's not easy to deviate from the pack. But again, when you look at the data, um, and also when you look at your strengths, I was just talking to somebody else on a, on a LinkedIn Live uh, earlier this week, where we, we spoke about um being in tune with kind of your energy creators and and your energy drainers and so something that that i tell people to do a lot is just sit down piece of paper draw a line down the middle in one column you write you know energy creators on on the other column you write energy drainers and just think about the things in your life that give you energy and the things that take your energy and so like for me um i i love writing i like sitting behind a screen and i like you know typing stuff out and really thinking about it and that really gives me energy Um, But on on the flip side, you know, going to, let's say like a networking event with tons of people that really drains my energy. And so for me, um, you know, how do I take that knowledge and apply it to the job search because it's sort of like, um, you know, you're going to be so much more effective when you invest your energy in things that feel good and are your strengths. And so, you know, the, some of the examples I give are like, if, if you feel like your value is not being seen in a resume or a resume doesn't, you know, feel, uh, it doesn't feel good to anybody, uh, but doesn't feel like you're getting your value across, try something different. You know, if you feel more comfortable on camera, maybe you make a video resume, or if you feel like uh, your value would be better conveyed in a pitch deck, you know, maybe you go create a pitch deck. And so when you understand what your strengths are and what gives you energy, and you align that with anything you do, job search or promotions, projects at work, starting a business, when you double down on the stuff that excites you and and makes you like uh, happy to to kind of dive in, that's where the the results are going to come from. And you're just going to see so much more acceleration through that. So that's a long way to say that. I think once we give job seekers, once we sort of open the door to this new channel and we sort of give them permission to not tweak a million resumes and not send 100 Mm -hmm. online applications in and find a different way in the door. I think that's where they're most surprised. Yeah,
1: that makes a lot of sense.
0: Talk to us a little bit about, um, like, you've hinted at this already. But when you want to bring a job seeker into the hidden job market, or you increase their access to it, what are some of the steps?
2: Yeah, so the, the first step is to just get really clear on on where you want to go. And I think a lot of job seekers don't quite do enough work here. They just get out there and they start throwing applications out and they hope that something lands. And so it's really, really important to get that clarity up front. And it doesn't have to be, you know, the laser focus, like I know exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life. But it's helpful to know... I want to do this type of role in this type of industry or field, um, or, or I want to work for this type of company. And once you have that, um, then you can start implementing the process. But the, the problem is if you just kind of, whether it's out of um, desperation, or whether it's just out of time sensitivity, or, or whatever it is, you just start throwing applications out there, you run the risk of jumping into a situation where you're not happy. And what do you do then? Well, you go back to square one and you have to go through the whole process again. so Mm -hmm. taking an extra week, taking an extra two weeks to um, maybe take a couple of assessments and understand what your strengths are. Maybe go talk to some people who are in these different industries or in these different roles, just to get some clarity around what's out there and what you're interested in and what aligns with your values. Um, That's gonna save you potentially another six month job search or, or whatever it is down the road. So that's the first piece. Um, and then the other thing I'd say on that note is a lot of job seekers make the mistake of going too wide and that hurts you because you, you can't be an expert when you are a Jack of all trades and being an expert is so important in the job search, because at the end of the day, the job search is just a sales process and you're the product. And, you know, if if I'm a salesperson and I'm trying to sell cars and laptops and insurance plans and all this other stuff, there's no way I can be an expert in all those things. And so my pitch is going to be vague. It's going to be general and it's probably going to fall flat. And that's exactly what happens with job seekers who have these kind of generic resumes where they flip out a few sentences and swap a few more in and keep flinging out those those applications. Instead, you know, if you can get really dialed into an industry and you can uh, get focused there, like instead of spending 100% of your time, uh, you know, across 10 industries, so each industry gets 10%, you can spend 100% of your time on one industry, and you can really learn a ton about it, you can become an expert in it. And that's going to make you uh, much more effective when you position your value or when you need to understand more about what the company cares about. And that's really what this is about. Um, You know, job seekers make a big mistake when they make the pitch and the search about them versus, you know, what's in it for the other, what's in it for the company? Because it sounds bad and it is bad, but a company doesn't really care about you beyond the extent to the ROI and the value that you can bring to them. Mm -hmm. And companies will tell you, you know, our people are the most important thing or culture really matters to us. And, And that's, you know, Culture does matter and people are important, but at the end of the day, you know, there's a reason why certain companies you know, lay people off when things aren't going well or restructure, or do these other things. At the end of the day, it's a business and the bottom line is, is what matters. And so that's what companies care about. And so instead of trying to make them connect the dots in your background, if you can show them, you know, hey, this is what I bring to the table, uh, and this is why it matters for you, that's really what's going to be uh, the most effective way for you to pitch your value. So all that to say, you know, get very clear on a space and a role, and then once you're there, uh, I recommend that people make a list of like 10 to 15 companies somewhere in that ballpark. It's small enough where we can manage going deep on them, but large enough to give us a deep uh, or a decent sample size. And then once you have your 10 companies, um, I like to uh, prioritize them, sort of like you know, if you think about applying to university, you have your stretch schools. Like, yeah, I'll throw that application at Princeton because mm-hmm. you know you never know. Um, and then you have your middle of the road companies, which are still great companies, and you'd be excited to work there, maybe a stepping stone into that stretch company. Uh, and then you have your safety companies, which is uh, this is always an interesting one because they're they you know safety school is essentially if nothing else works out, I, I know I can get in there, I'll go there. That mm-hmm. doesn't really exist in the job search, um, but a safety company is is a company that is is still in your target industry but maybe a company that you, uh, you know, to, to be blunt, just don't really care about as much. And, you know, why do we have that on our target list? Well, this is a new strategy for a lot of people out there. And so as with anything new, you know, our first attempt is likely not gonna be our best. Like when I was job searching, uh, I sent an email blast to people at Google cause that's where I wanted to work. I sent it it's like 50 people. And I woke up the next day and I reread it and there were like two glaring typos in there. And I just wanted to like <laughs> jump out the window. And that's a mistake that, you know, would be remedied if if I sent that cold email to a lower stakes company or, 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 you know, made some of these mistakes or got to experiment test in a lower stakes environment. So that's really what we create with these, uh, you know, quote safety companies. You only need a couple of them, one, two, three, if you want. Um, But giving yourself that space to get in some reps, to make those mistakes, to experiment and test out different things. Uh, and then you work your way, honestly, from lowest priority to highest priority. So by the time you get to the top of your list, you know what email templates tend to work. You know what conversation style uh, allows you to best convey your value. You understand how to connect with people. Like all these things, um, you're going to be more effective and you're just going to have more confidence. And confidence, honestly, is is a huge part of this whole endeavor. And so picking those 10 to 15 companies and, and allocating them or prioritizing them that way, um, is how I have people start. And then we go look for contacts at those companies. And so my uh, ballpark or or sort of my minimum is we wanna hit 150 contacts total. So that's basically 10 to 15 contacts at each of those 10 to 15 companies. And that's, uh, and we can walk through it if you want, but uh, that's really the number that I, where I see the odds sort of swing statistically in the favor of the candidate. Uh, because it's still a numbers game, but we just have a lot more control over the process when we're building relationships than we do via online apps. You know, for me, one of the most frustrating things was I could submit like five apps, 50 apps or 500 apps. And I like, couldn't tell either of you how many interviews I'd get out of that. And it was really frustrating. Whereas when we reach out to people, um, there's the steps are a lot more defined, and the, the success rates uh, are—you know—we we can predict those based on past performance, and then we can operate on that on those results. And so, um, I just have people hit that 150 number in sort of whatever way works for them. And then we, we're sort of off to the races. We're going to do some research on those companies. We can go deeper into any of this stuff if you want, but we're going to do some research on those companies and we're going to perform some outreach at about the same time. You know, research three companies, email people at those three companies. And that way it keeps our, our, the information fresh. Um, and we're going to kind of space it out because if you send 150 emails in one day uh, and, and you make my mistake and they all have two typos in them, you know, you're probably not going to get good results. So you want to give yourself some space for that reflection and that analysis. Um, and then to, to make this like incredibly oversimplified, you basically get on the phone with these people, you build a relationship with them, you learn more about their challenges and their goals and their values, uh, and then you try to add value against that. in again, whatever way, you know, gives you energy plays into your strengths as we talked about before. And so that's sort of a a simplification, um, and an overview of the process, but I'm, I'm happy to jump into any of that in more detail.
0: I'm really curious, first of all, thanks for sharing all of that. You deliver amazing answers. Everything I see that's written from you <laughs> seems to come, obviously comes from somewhere and we're seeing it now live. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah, so I I'm, would love to know, do you get pushback from people you're working with who are like, this doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever, Austin, I, ye, like what happens at that point?
2: Yeah, I mean, I get I get pushback all the time and it's not just from people I work with, like people on LinkedIn, uh, come, come at me for these strategies, you know, day in and day out. And that's fine. I, I had a guy commented on my post who was like the head of HR at, um, I think it was Spotify or something. And, and he was like, I would never do this. And I was like, okay, well, I guess we, we agreed to disagree then. But um, it, it's foreign to a lot of people. And and I think especially um, you're going to get pushback when you're, well, at least from the, the perspective of people in the traditional process, um, you know, recruiters are working their butts off, but a lot of them are compensated and, uh, and, and they make money off of being the person who finds the, the, the candidate that gets hired, um, or they, they are, you know, compensated based on, you know, certain things that, that are involved with the traditional process. And so when we go around them, I get a lot of people come to me and they say, don't ever email a hiring manager because they don't like that. They'll get annoyed. You should email a recruiter. Um, and my advice is actually to do the opposite and, and flip that on its head. But um, I get pushed back there and I get pushed back from people who are going through it because mm-hmm. typically what happens is they, they email people and they come to me and they say, Hey, Austin, your outreach strategy doesn't work. And I say, how many people did you email? And they say five. I'm like, well, how many online applications have you submitted in the last month? And they're like, 50 i'm like well, why don't you try emailing 50 people then and, and then maybe we can see what's going on but that's the reason i preface with the the 150 contacts because like anything else this is a numbers game we talked about it before like it's a new skill emailing strangers is not comfortable for many of us um but even so like you, you're not going to be good at anything that's new. The first time you need that practice, you need to fail. You need to experiment. You need to learn what works for you. And so the only way you're going to get there is if you have that sample size that you can really dig into. And so, um, that's, that's typically the biggest pushback that I get. The, there's a number of other reasons that it won't work for people. Um, one big mistake is, is that people use what I call a me mindset and they essentially reach out and they say, um, you know, hey, Mike, you work at this company and, and mm-hmm. I want to work there too. So here's my resume. Like, can you review it? Uh, pass it along. Introduce me to somebody who can help me get a job. And, you know, that's a really selfish ask uh, from a stranger, but essentially what you're asking, I mean, I get these messages all the time and people are basically saying like, hey, Austin, will you go tell your manager at Microsoft that uh, this person that emailed you one time and you've never met before is worth a hundred plus thousand dollars and you'll vouch for their work. And like the answer a hundred times out of a hundred is no, because we've never even spoken before. And so that's just a really really big ask off the bat. So instead, you know, what we want to do, and if we look at any of the relationships in our lives, like relationships are built on, you know, there's a couple core criteria, but really what it boils down to is, you know, that there's value exchange. Um, there's typically some common ground in some capacity, and they're built in small layers over time, like any of our best friends or people in our closest circles, you know, we didn't have one beer with them or, you know, go talk to them on a 130 minute phone call. And all of a sudden, they're like, you know, top 10 friends in our life or whatever, like there were lots of interactions over time. And so that's the same with this relationship building stuff. And it's not even like you need 50 interactions to make this happen. Like something as simple as making the first outreach about the other person, getting on the phone with them and letting them talk for, you know, the first half of the call, and then asking some questions to tease out more information about them and their team and challenges and stuff like that. And, you know, then maybe putting out, you know something that you're looking for that can be really effective and what if we delayed our gratification for two interactions there but it's going to be so much more effective than if you just show up and and you like throw your resume in their face and so that's where a lot of people struggle and it's not I don't say that to to demean job seekers in any way because what happens here is you know I, so I I give this workshop on relationship building and and I just uh I I led a session last night And I ask everybody at the beginning, who's heard of networking? And everybody raises their hand. And then I say, you know, okay, great. How many of you would feel confident in the exact steps you take to build a relationship with a hiring manager at your dream company? And like not a single hand goes up. And so I think that really illustrates that networking is something that's shoved down our throat. Like you got to do it, you got to do it, but then nobody tells you how to do it. There's no formula or playbook or, you know, recipe for going and building these relationships. And so what happens then? Well, we feel this pressure to go build relationships, but we don't know how to do it. So we do what's comfortable um, in a very uncomfortable situation. And that's just make a direct ask, you know, hey, this is what I'm looking for. We've never met. This is what I need. And so that's where we come from as job seekers. And that's, you know, not necessarily a malicious action. But on the other side, the way it's viewed is who the heck are you and why are you asking me to, to go to bat for you? And so that's a big disconnect. And if job seekers can just take a step back and put themselves honestly in their in the shoes of the person they're emailing and say, hey, if I got this email, like, truthfully, if I was working at this amazing company, if I was in their shoes, if all was well, and my, I was happy in my career, and I got this email from a total stranger, you know, asking me to basically refer them in after I busted my butt to get to this company, like, would I reply? And if the answer is yes, you know, sure, go ahead and send that email. But if you're honest with yourself, the answer is probably going to be no. And so maybe we rework that email until the answer would be yes. And I think that's just the simplest litmus test that you can, you know, go through with your emails before you press send on them. Um, But really making it about the other person and trying to offer that value uh, or, it's simply just not making that big ask for yourself up front can go a long way.
0: Makes so much sense. Yeah. There's a line I recently discovered and correct me if I'm wrong, Austin, you've been in sales for a fair bit of your career. Um, There's a line that says 2% of sales are made on the first contact and 80% are made between contacts five and 12. So we're talking about looking at really starting to take the long view, getting off of that, first pitch swing for the fences type approach that it seems like job seekers sometimes take and it doesn't really land very far.
2: Yeah, a hundred percent. And that that's something that I use with a lot of people that I coach as well, because it's, it's totally true. And those touch points don't have to be big. Um, you know, that's, that's I think a, we we mentioned it earlier, but it's a misconception like that. You don't need to have five 30 minute calls to then make the sale, like it mm-hmm. could be, an initial comment on a LinkedIn post, and then send them a connection request, hey, I really like what you're sharing, and then maybe another comment, and now we're at three, and then maybe you send them an email, and you get on the phone, and then you make an ask, and all of a sudden, boom, there are five touch points, and and many of those were just small little things. And so it doesn't have to be anything crazy, but absolutely. And the other thing I'd add, um, going back to the email part, like so many people forget to follow up. And when we talk about touch points, like sending an email is a touch point and following up one, two, three times is a touch point and um, similar statistic, but the vast majority of, of uh, actions are taken on, I believe it's the fourth or fifth follow up in terms of just the cold email scope. Mm-hmm. And so staying politely persistent can, can pay off as well too. I think a lot of people, they don't get a reply and they're like, well, this person doesn't wanna to talk to me. And that's not necessarily true, especially in the, the crazy world we live in. You never know what's going on on the other side. So I always like to, to approach it with best intentions. They're probably busy. Doesn't mean they don't wanna to talk to me or even if they don't, I wanna make sure, I wanna get that no from them um, so I can truly cross them off my list. Like a no is a blessing. It means you can move on and you don't have to spend any more time or energy on, on that person or that channel.
1: Oh, true. Mm-hmm. You, you've given us some really great tactical things to start with. So if somebody's brand new to networking, like you said, not really sure how to do this, you mentioned LinkedIn commenting, you mentioned emails, are there other best practices and ways that people can reach out in a way that is kind of testing the waters?
2: Yeah. So I would say that the most effective way, so I'll say two things here. Um, one, just touching on the LinkedIn thing again, like LinkedIn comments are, are the like low key, most underrated effective tactic that you can do. And I think a lot of people just don't take advantage of it. So if you go look at one of my, like the analytics for my most recent post today, or any of the posts that I post, like, uh, what you're going to see is you know, the number one company is, that viewed my post is Microsoft. And that's because I work there. And the number one title of people who view my post are uh, either salespeople or, or recruiters because I'm in sales and I talk about careers. Um, but then what are the other companies? Well, they're Google and they're Amazon and they're Facebook and they're Twitter. And what are some of the other titles? You know, marketing, um, other, other titles in, in HR, other titles in sales, business development. And so what does that mean? Well, if you if you comment on my post, you're getting in front of thousands of people who are at similar companies in similar roles. And so uh, most people don't realize this because they don't post their own content um, or they don't post and and get to sort of a level where you would have access to those analytics, which is, you know, why it's important to share. Um, But so what can you do here? Well, you can go find people who are active on LinkedIn in your target space, like we talked about before, it could be roles, it could be fields. Hopefully, you find both somebody who's in your target role at your at your target companies or fields, and if they're active on LinkedIn, you know, even if they're not the person to reach out to, just by engaging with their posts, a couple of things happen. You know, one, you get in front of these people who are viewing their posts, and what I've noticed on on LinkedIn, and, and maybe you all have noticed this as well, but like a lot of the uh, conversions and a lot of the meaningful stuff. Happens from people who don't necessarily interact on my post, like it's a DM or it's an email. Hey, I found you on LinkedIn. Hey, I read this post. It's not somebody who's liking or commenting it, and so the views are really powerful. Just because somebody doesn't engage with the post doesn't necessarily mean that there's no action that will be taken. Um, and then on top of that, you build a relationship with the poster. And so I, I call this, this is one of the strategies that I use with my clients, but I call it warming people up on social media. And so instead of um, you know in, instead of like just sending Lisa cold email saying, hey, you know, here's my resume. If I show up on LinkedIn, and and I maybe leave a really, I listen to this episode, and I leave a really thoughtful comment, um, and it sparks some conversation in the comment thread, and then I do that three times, and then I reach out to you, you're, you're going to know my name, and you're probably going to have somewhat of a positive association with it, and you're going to be more likely to engage with me in, in some capacity. And so by leaving comments on these people's posts, we're sort of creating that relationship with them. And we're getting visibility with all these people who are in the industry that we want to go to. And so that, that's really, really powerful. Um, so that's thing one. Thing two is, um, you know, we had to boil down networking to like one specific thing. When you're reaching out, like ask yourself the question, what would make this person excited to respond to me? And that's it. And so it could be something as simple as, like, uh, I recommend a maybe I have an AMA uh, one Friday, and somebody's like, Austin, what books are you reading? And I'm like, oh, I'm reading um, like The Vanishing Half right now. And so that's not really a business book, but could still be worthwhile. And maybe you go read that book and you email me and you say, hey, Uh, I really enjoyed you know I I know you're reading this book I read it because I saw you're reading it I really enjoyed x y and z parts Um, you know thank you so much for posting about it and that's it Um, I'm going to be much more likely and excited to reply to that because that's something that you know I'm reading the book books take a lot of time I I picked the book for a reason Um, and so you know and it doesn't even have to be that deep I could ask you all you know like hey, Mike, I'm thinking about starting my own podcast. Um, Would you recommend that I read this book or take this course? And maybe you're like, go take that course. Great. So I go take the course and I learn some stuff and I come back to you and I'm like, Mike, oh my God, like you blew my mind. I read this or I I listened to this one lesson and it changed the game for me. I was struggling with that so much. Like, thank you. Thank you. Um, You know, if you don't mind me asking, what would the next step be? And now all of a sudden, like, I know you have a podcast. Like I know that you like helping people. And so I play into both of those things with that question and that probably gets you excited to give me an answer. And I also don't make it taxing. I'm not like, like tell me everything that you've ever done to build your <laughs> podcast. Cause a lot of job seekers do that too. They're like, Austin, tell me everything about how you got the Microsoft. And I'm like, well, I literally have like thousands of hours of content written on this. So like, how much time do you have? But if you make it easy for, for anybody, Where you know, ask me a question that I can answer in 15, 20 seconds, and then go do the work and come back. Like that relationship is going to build in those small layers. And so that's another great thing uh, to do when you start building these relationships. But the way to get in the door is, you know, what would make this person excited to chat with me? And how can I play into that? What do they like? What are their goals? What do they recommend? Um, Or can I just ask them a question? And if you do one of those two things, I think you're going to find a relationship building a lot less scary and a lot more fun, um, mm-hmm. and it's just going to be a lot more effective than even just blasting out cold emails. Both of those tend to be a lot more effective than any cold email that you're going to send. That's really a lot more professional. So yeah, those would be the the two things that that I would suggest that people do, and especially the comments. I I wish that more people would get out there and and put themselves out there on the platform.
0: Yeah. It's not hypothetical what you're saying either. I mean, it's how we've arrived at this conversation. It's yeah. not like I DM'd you out of the blue. Uh, it There's been months of some back and forth and mostly me just commenting on your stuff because
2: you write <laughs> such great stuff, but it didn't come out of nowhere. And look where it's brought us to. Exactly, exactly. And that's like 90% of my relationships these days. And the cool part about it too, like the last thing I'd say is um, like, the thing I love about online relationships is that like, you can really like find your people in the sense that you don't have to settle for hanging out or talking to somebody who's like not on your same wavelength. Like once we open it up to the internet, there are like so many people out there who are doing amazing things like your people, your tribe and, and, you know, the people that are going to make you better are out there. And if you're willing to, Put a little bit of yourself out there and you do it authentically you know especially you're going to connect with people it's like you know your vibe attracts your tribe kind of thing but it's really true mm-hmm. like you're going to connect with people who you know so many people that i've met online i've been like oh my god you know like where's this person been all my life like we there's so many connection points so many commonalities i love talking to them and i never would have met them if i didn't put myself out there on, on linkedin or on some of these platforms and so I think that um, rather than viewing it as like, this is terrifying to like press publish on this post because what will the current people in my life say or whatever it is, I would try to flip that on its head and be like the people that are gonna see my value and are gonna be excited to talk to me, like they are out there and the only way that I'm gonna connect with them is if I start putting myself out there and I start doing it in in an, in an authentic way. Makes so much sense. Cool,
0: Okay. So Austin, let's talk, about, let's talk about the big silver bullet you <laughs> keep talking about and wielding over at Cultivated Culture. What is a value validation project? How does it work? And why is it such a valuable job search tactic?
2: Yeah, so uh, it's really my answer to the frustration that we were talking about before in not having your value recognized in a resume or through the, the traditional process. And so uh, value, value validation projects really came to me when I was transitioning industries, I did a lot of freelancing and I had to start from scratch. You know, I didn't have a client base or portfolio, I had to get clients. And so my thought process was, well, if I, if I want to get a client, I'm I need to go above and beyond. And again, going back to the, the point we made earlier, if you want to win in the sales process, you need to make it about the other person. And so what did I do? Well, I basically, my goal was to, to give more value than I knew my competition was giving for free in order to give the prospect a, a little bit of a taste of exactly what they'd get. And so when I was freelancing, you know, I would go do these deep competitive, competitive analyses and I would come up with some suggestions that if they implemented them, absolutely, they, they would be able to, you know, see some, some progress. And that ended up netting me a lot of clients um, simply because like I showed them exactly what they would get. And so I translated that into the job search Um, when nothing else was working. I was like, well, I was doing this for freelance when same type of deal, a lot of competition, we wanna win somebody's money and and this idea of ROI, same type of thing with the job search, why don't I do one of those? And so I started putting together these projects, which are essentially uh, decks. And what I would do is I would go, I would do as much research as I possibly could on, on the company and from the top down. So I would be listening to earnings calls. I would be reading articles. I would be trying to survey customers. I would go find communities online where uh, their target audience or their customers were hanging out. I would try to get into the product myself if I could. I tried to basically hit it from all angles. And my goal was to get an understanding of, you know, where is there a gap or where is there an opportunity um, or co- even just conversations with current employees and, and hearing it you know, directly from the source. And my whole thing was, like, is there a space where I can kind of slide into and make it obvious that I research their company, understand why they're hiring for this role, and then tee up the value that I bring to the table. Mm -hmm. And so that ended up being really, really effective. And the whole reason for that is because... The traditional process isn't just harmful to job seekers, it's also harmful to hiring managers or harmful is the wrong word. It's, uh, I would say, potentially frustrating because what ends up happening is like a recruiter is very, very good at reading a resume because that's their job. That's what they do. They read a lot of them. A hiring manager is not a recruiter. A hiring manager like does their job title, right? Reading resumes mm-hmm. is not part of their job description. So what ends up happening is that, you know, on the on the candidate side too, like we have to write this document in a language that we don't really use anywhere else in our lives. Like nobody ever sells themselves or pitches themselves or communicates themselves in the language that we use to write our resumes. And then on the flip side, these hiring managers aren't used to reading that language. So it's almost as if, you know, the analogy I like to give is if you go to New York city and you jump into a bar and there's somebody from one country and somebody from a different country and English is maybe like their third language, they can have a conversation. Absolutely. But um, are there going to be hiccups and are there potentially going to be things lost in translation? Like, absolutely. And so that tends to be what happens with a resume or the traditional process. You know, the, the job seeker isn't accurately conveying their value. Hiring manager isn't always perceiving the value in the way that the job seeker hopes. And so, you know, if that's the case, why don't we just create something that makes our value like stupid obvious? And the way to do that is, Again, playing into your strengths and your, you know, what gives you energy. And so again, if creating videos or being on camera is something that you like love and you're good at, go create a video, you know, building decks, building decks comes very naturally to me. And I feel like that's the best way I can express my ideas. You know, that's what I did. Um, If you're a software engineer, you know, maybe you go build like a little applet or you go find a bug. Um, I I was giving that relationship building workshop. I mentioned um, one of the students in the class was telling me that like his pastime is going and finding his favorite products and like finding bugs and then emailing people at the companies and being like hey your products broken. And he actually had built some relationships that way and I'm like you know that's super cool like good for mm-hmm. you. Um and so it's all about understanding your skill set and the the way you're comfortable communicating and also the way that somebody on the other end is going to be able to understand that value. So Uh, Long story short, a value validation project is essentially a deliverable that you bring to the table that shows that you've done your research on the company, you understand why they're hiring for this role specifically, and it offers some sort of value that aligns to that need or that goal for the role. So uh, examples are are typically helpful. Um, one of the people that I was coaching, uh, she wanted a job at Away Luggage, and so she had been working in jewelry. She basically been working in like a retail operations type role. She wanted to transition into tech into an account management role, which is you know pretty pretty large uh, mm-hmm. jump and not a ton of transferable experience. And so um, she was targeting this company, Away Luggage, which is essentially uh, it was founded by two Warby Parker alums. And they wanted to take that same model and, and make suitcases more affordable. But more than that, their mission was to, like, elevate the travel experience. So instead of, you know, she put together a resume and she did all this stuff, but she knew she needed to go further to illustrate her value. So she went out and she surveyed. Uh, uh, 15 millennials, AKA just 15 of her friends who were in away <laughs> luggages target demographic, which, which was millennials or is millennials. And so she asked them a bunch of questions about their travel experience. What did they like about it? What did they not like about it? If they could wave a magic wand and like have something added or changed, what would it be? And she got all this great information. And so she put it together in a deck and she, basically what she said was like, Hey, um, you all, like, here's your mission to elevate the travel experience. And then next, she was like, I surveyed 15 millennials about their travel habits. And here were some of the pain points. And then here are three solutions to address those pain points. Um, and so one of them, for example, was um, the fact that, you know, millennials like, uh, not necessarily a pain point, but millennials like the, the idea of perceived value, like they want to feel like they're getting a, a good value for their money. And so how can a way Luggage do that? Well, they can add more um, you know, little benefits to their suitcase. Like uh, for example, uh, you, when you go through security, you have your clear, clear plastic bag for your liquids. Well, what if that's a big Away branded thing? And so that comes with your suitcase for free. Uh, and then when you go to security, you put that in the bin and everybody's like, oh, that's an Away, you know, bag. So Away gets free branding. You feel good because, you know, the same way we wear Ray-Bans or whatever logo, you know, Yeezys or whatever you want, you know, you want that, that to be associated with that brand. Same thing with Away. And so that's a win on both sides there. Um, My favorite idea that she had was, you know, all these millennials love. We love our credit card points and we love our loyalty programs, Um, and I'm guilty of that as well. But she said, you know, why don't why doesn't a way tap into that? They're based in New York. JFK is a, a home airport technically. What if we go work with JFK and we build a pop-up lounge? And so instead of going to the Amex Centurion lounge or whatever and flashing your platinum card, you just roll up to the away lounge with your suitcase. And like, that's your ticket into the lounge. And then you get access to, you know, better seating or faster Wi-Fi or free water or whatever it is. And then people walking by are like, oh, like I know the Amex lounge, but what's this? And people are like, oh, that's a way luggage. Somebody's like, oh, I want, I want one of those suitcases because I want to get into the lounge. And so she had a couple of these ideas um, and that's what she led with. So she would reach out, she would talk to some of these people at the company and then she would send this deck and that got her in the door there. And she would not have been able to do that without you know, doing all of that, that research. And so um, that's just one example. I I have, I have plenty more um, if if you all want, or if you think it'd be helpful, but I think that's a great illustration of, you know, so many of us say like, man, I know I could do this job if somebody would just give me a chance. But for the reasons we talked about before, in terms of the cost of hiring and the risk and all that, like companies aren't in the business of just giving you a chance and hoping you can do it. Mm -hmm. They want to know that you can do it and honestly you can you can turn a non-traditional background into an, a bit of an advantage like if you go put something like that together if i'm a hiring manager like do i want somebody who has yes a traditional background but has gone through the motions they got the degree they got the you know junior job and now they want the middle middle of the road job or do i want somebody who's like so freaking committed to this change in this company that they went out and talked to 15 people and came up with this whole deck like i'm going with number 2 every time because that person is just going so far above and beyond to show me that they want this and also providing like actually valuable and relevant ideas. Mm -hmm.
1: I've had similar conversations with some clients and people tend to be a little bit skeptical upfront because they're like, am I working for free? Am yes. I putting in my time and working for free? So what would you say to these people?
2: Oh my God, I'm so glad you asked that Lisa because that's my favorite That's my favorite question to be asked as a career coach. Um, so I like to say two things here. Uh, one is uh, the average increase in salary uh, when you change jobs is you know, between 10 and, and 20%. And that's when you switch companies and, and you do the whole thing. And so, you know, let's say that I make, um, let's say that I make fifty thousand bucks a year, and I stand to make my my twenty percent raise. And let's say a value validation project um, is is going to take me, uh, you know, I have it for let's say two three companies in the running, and it's going to take me um, in the ballpark of of twenty hours to to put together value validation projects for all three of those companies. So, twenty hours. Um, I'm making fifty k and 20% of that is 10K. So I'm basically working at a $500 an hour rate. So my answer is that if you are not willing to work for $500 an hour, I don't know how badly you want this job because I bet when you work in the actual job, you will not be paid $500 $500 an hour. So you're actually telling me that you are you want to do less work for a job that if you got hired, you would be paid less than if you did the value validation project. So that's the first thing I tell these people. Uh, these people, I say with like such disdain. No, that, that's what I tell <laughs> people who have that question. And it is a valid question. The other thing that I would say as well is that the VVP tends to be a great litmus test. So the whole system here is, for me, It's not about finding a job it's about finding the job it's about finding a job that really aligns with your values and so if somebody steals your ideas uh, that happens to me many many times both in the freelance space and, and in the job search and that made me so happy whenever that happened because i knew that i would have hated working there because if a company was relying on stealing interview candidates ideas for to run their business to succeed one, I'm questioning that business model, um, but two, I'm questioning, like, this is what you're doing to me when I'm not on your payroll. Like, what's going to happen when you're my manager, and every time I have an idea, you take credit for it, or every time I try to go for a promotion, you undermine me. Like, how is that going to work? It, it's That is not going to be for me. And so I actually was happy whenever somebody stole my ideas, quote unquote, because I knew that that wasn't the right place for me or the right team for me, at least. It doesn't mean the whole company, like you should explode the whole company, but maybe that specific role on that specific team. Um, But then on top of that, like I also created this piece of collateral that I can leverage elsewhere. And so like that uh, away luggage, uh, VVP could be relevant for other companies um, or at the very least I added to my portfolio. And now all of a sudden, when people say you don't have any experience or how do I know you'll be able to do this job? You can say, hey, look at this thing I put together. Uh, another example of this is uh, somebody was, was basically, um, they, they were looking to get into data science and they, they went out and they found, um, so Twitter lets you basically scrape their, their tweet data for, for free. It's like publicly accessible. So they did a sentiment analysis on tweets uh, for airline brands. So basically they scraped all these tweets, they ran them through natural language processing and then they used that, that um, uh, natural language processing to understand if the tweet had a positive sentiment and neutral sentiment or a negative sentiment. And then they said, okay, for, for these four airline brands, what's the sentiment, you know, total shock. It was like massively negative. Um, but that's interesting to airline brands. That's also interesting to every brand like hotels or tech companies or whatever, like most brands are interested to know what their consumers are saying about them and what the sentiment is. And so that's a way to sort of templatize a value validation project so that you can use it in different scenarios. And so, Creating these VVPs are really, really awesome ways to build your chops and flesh out a portfolio. And you also never know what will come out of them. One of the the women I was coaching, um, she created like, I think it was five different VVPs for companies. She ended up getting an amazing job where she works on SEO at at LinkedIn. Um, But then she went back to one of the other companies and said, hey, I got hired at this other place. uh, But if you're still interested in working together, like I can consult for you. And they said, yeah. So now she got a dream job and she's got a side gig because of these value validation projects. So there are so many upsides to creating these VVPs. And the last thing I would say is, like, you know, all of that aside, like, wipe everything else away. You know, is what you're currently doing working? Like, if you've hired a career coach or if you've gone through the job search process, like, clearly, something is, is you feel like there is, there's something missing because it's not working for you. So for me, my attitude in, in life is like, I want to be able to, I can control what I can control. And I want to be able to put my head on the pillow uh, at night and say, yeah, I did a hundred percent of what I could do for this thing to get that job, to pitch this client, to, you know, go for that promotion. And after that, it's sort of out of my hands. And if I don't get the job that, that sucks. That's a bummer. Like I'm not going to feel good, but I know that I know that I did hundred percent, but if I, if I am in that interview phase and I'm like, I I could spend the time in a value validation project, but like, what if they steal my ideas and then I don't get the job? Is there going to be something inside, like gnawing at me every time I have to submit that next resume or every time I have to go to that next interview where it's saying, why didn't you just make the project like dummy? Why didn't you just go do it? And that's the feeling that I wanted to avoid because I couldn't. I couldn't go to bed at night. I couldn't live with myself if I knew that there was something else I could have done to get a role that I really wanted. So I'm not going to let something that is out of my control um, take over the strategy that I have. I'm going to bet on myself. I'm going to do the stuff that's in my control, and I'm also going to realize that there's a lot of upside to be had. I mean, a lot of the people I mentioned the 50k salary before and the 10%, 20% raise, a lot of the people that I coach are more in like the 30 to 40% raise. And like when I got hired at Microsoft, they doubled my salary. And so like the hourly rate on my value validation project was like uh, like an unrealistic moonshot if you calculated it out. And so there's like that was a conservative example we talked about earlier. So just think about what, what you stand to gain by putting this together. And sure you can think about what you stand to lose, but like, is the risk reward worth it? And in, in my opinion, in pretty much every case it, it is.
1: Sounds like the glass is definitely half
0: full.
2: Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So cool. Okay,
0: we have some questions that we like to ask of all our guests that come on the show to kind of wind things down or wind things up, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> so, we talk about fun being an important part of what we do um, in our lives, professionally, personally. What's the most fun you've had in your career so far?
2: Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. So I would say that the most fun I've had is was when I started just posting stuff on LinkedIn and people, people responded. Um, and there was just sort of this light bulb moment that I could share these ideas with more people. Um, but there was, to the point we mentioned earlier, like there were all these people out there that I, I could now connect with and all these people that I could interact with that I, I couldn't before. And so I could, one, spread the word on some of these strategies that were so helpful to me and, you know, will help people solve some of their issues. But I could also connect with amazing people like you all and some of the amazing friends that I've made through this whole process. And I, I had always known, like, you start a business and everybody's like, you got to do social media. And you never expect to be, like, I, my, um, I never expected to get to like 10,000 followers or whatever it is. And like everything else has just sort of been beyond like my wildest imagination. But just when that moment clicked, where like people started, there was like a, a threshold of like interactions and comments on these posts that was meaningful. Like that was so exciting to me, uh, almost more so than than anything else. And And I would say though, like, that's the most fun that I've had the most impactful moment and the best thing that's ever happened to me was was landing the job at Microsoft like that was literally the, the most besides marrying my wife, I, I will caveat with that. Uh, that was the most like incredible thing that's happened to me in my career, but the most fun was definitely like when those posts started clicking. Cool. That's so neat. Appreciate that. We also talk about risk
0: and risk is a part of a lot of people's careers. If you're changing verticals, if you're just getting started, it might seem like a big, scary, risky world out there. What's the biggest risk you've taken in your career and how did it turn out?
2: The biggest risk was definitely jumping ship from the traditional job search process because although looking back, the risk wasn't as, as large as I thought it would be or I perceived it to be, but when you're standing on the other side of the fence or the the edge of the cliff, um, there's, there weren't really any resources out there and nobody else that I had ever gone to for advice. You know, we go, we go to our, our core group, our family, our friends, you know, career services or counselors or Google, and nobody in that group had ever really gone down this path. And so I just knew that I had, I had sent in 300 plus online applications. I hadn't heard back from any of these companies. Like everything everybody was telling me wasn't working. And for me, I have a really hard time doing things because other people tell me to do them. I do things because I either want to do them or I believe that they are going to be successful. And so I really just had to make a bet on myself and and take the leap. And I had to figure this stuff out. And it, was, it wasn't easy. I'd love to tell you like, yeah, I sent an email to somebody and like, I, you know, got an interview and I got the job. Like I sent thousands of emails to people and I got, you know, at the beginning, like 90% of them were non response or no. And then it became 80 and then 70. And then, you know, I I was testing and iterating and learning from these failures and this rejection. And over time, you know, it took me a while to build this system. It took me, uh, I moved to, I got a job in New York and moved to New York after about a, a year or so. Um, and then I got a job at Microsoft, Uh, shortly after that. But it took me time to really flesh out the system and understand the ins and outs of this whole process. And so that wasn't easy to make that choice and basically abandon all the support systems that I had and sort of say, it's going to be okay, because I know that there's a different and better way to do this. Hmm. That's powerful. Yeah,
0: betting on yourself. I honestly think that might be one of the best takeaways for a lot of dear listeners who are tuning into this. Appreciate that.
2: Yeah.
1: All right, and so our last question is: What is the best piece of career advice that you have ever received?
2: Yeah, it's uh, an easy one. It is to only take advice from people who already have what you want. So there's a lot of advice out there. There's a lot of information out there in in the uh, in in the world that we live in today. And anybody these days, uh, it's a blessing and a curse, right? Anybody can start a business. Anybody can put information out there. Um, and anybody can give advice and people, people love to give advice and you have to be very careful about whose advice you take. And so I say this about anybody's advice, mine included, you know, if, you want to like, take a look at your goals. Where do you want to go and take a look at where you're at now, and then go find people who have successfully made the transition and try to find people who are as close to where you're at now as you possibly can. So for me, one of the first things that I did when I, when I made that leap was I wrote down the criteria for my dream job. And those were a number of things, but the main thing was, you know, can I go find people who, Came from a non-traditional background and landed a job at Microsoft or Google or any of these companies that I eventually wanted to work for. And when I found those people and I talked to them, it was almost like I had found like like I I I can't even describe it. It was just like there was so much relief because these people were telling me like the things that I had known like don't apply online, like resumes are a terrible way to convey your value. You know, this is an issue you'll run into, and here's how to get over it. And so. I had been taking advice from all these people who had not been where I wanted to go or had not you know, been successful in the ways that I needed to be successful. And so once I found the people who had already walked the path that I was looking to walk and came from the same starting point, the advice was just so much more relevant and so much more impactful. And so I always say, um, you know, when you're looking for somebody's advice, one, check out where they're where they're at now, and is that somewhere you want to be? Are they working in the industry you want to work work in? Uh, if you want to start a business, have they started a business in a similar space with a similar product and seen success? Uh, and then where are they coming from? Have they come from a similar place that that you've come from? And then on top of that, like try to take action on some of their advice and see if it works. Because if it doesn't work for you, then it doesn't work for you. But if it does. Um, and they're sort of giving that advice away as sort of, you know, you ask a quick question or you see it in a post or whatever, and that that small amount is working for you, then there's probably more that's going to work for you if if you go ask for it. And then finally, this really applies more to to people who are sort of in the thought leadership space, but like, can you go find uh, testimonials from other like normal people who have, have spoken about their work? And um, if you can, if you can do that and you check uh, at least, you know, two of, of, three of those boxes i think that that's somebody somebody whose advice you can feel good taking Mm. but if that person hasn't been where you want to go if they're not coming from a background that's familiar to you um if you know you take action on their advice and it's confusing or it doesn't make sense or it's not working after you've given it a legitimate shot you know emailed 50 people instead of five people um then you know that may be somebody to shy away from right so the biggest and best thing you can do is is only take advice from people who already have what you want, who've been where you want to go.
1: Awesome. Well, for all of our listeners who want more of your advice, where can people find you?
2: For sure. Um, so two easy places. Uh, my website, cultivatedculture.com is... Uh, the best place for longer form advice. And we have a bunch of free tools, um, resume builder, resume scanner, all this other stuff. Uh, and then I'm pretty active on LinkedIn as well, which uh, people may have picked up on during, from the episode, but uh, yeah, feel free to connect with me. And if you do, I just, the easiest way is to leave a personal note with the request so I can, you know, pick you out of the, the crowd um, because I do want to, connect with people who have listened to the podcast um, and the personal note helps me do that. But yeah, I share a lot of content on there on a daily basis and I, I try to be as active and, and, and engaged as, as I can.
1: Awesome, thank you so
2: much. For yeah. sure, thank you both. I really appreciate you having me. This has been an amazing
0: episode. A great way to wrap up year one officially. Thank you so much, Austin. Let's, let's call it a week at that for the Career Builders Podcast. I'm Mike Bird.
1: I'm Lisa Plain.
0: Our guest was Austin Belsack Cultivated Culture. Go check him out. We hope you're well, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Bye for now.